This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Thabiti Anyabwile. All right, Thabiti. So today we're going to begin the first of a series of discussions on race and racism. Must we? At some point, <laughs> at some point we must. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, it, well, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's not, it, it will by no means be the only thing we talk about, but it is impossible not for it not to be something that we talk about, sure. I think. And we begun, we began to, we, you know, we've, we've, we've hinted at it in talking about tribes and in talking about immigration. Mm. Now we're going to really uh, sort of get into this set of questions. And today we're going to start with some of the foundations. I think what you like to call the floorboards. The floorboards. The floorboards, that's right. <laughs> um, so before we even get into the implications for politics, I wanted to just have a discussion about race and racism within the church, mm. since it's a live and important issue there. Um, so, Thabiti, you've, you've written extensively on this subject in books, in blog posts, lots of different places. So let's start with the absolute basics. Um, what is race hmm. and how is it distinct from ethnicity? So race is the false idea yeah. that um, you can divide humanity into a number of racial groups, that these groupings are rooted in biology. Um, so that you have an, an, an African or Africoid group, um, a, a Caucasian or a Caucasoid group. Um, I'm using some of the old language here, a, a Mongolian, a huh. Mongoloid group. Um, That's and my so people, on. huh? That's right. Yeah, That's right. right. So depending upon who the, the theorist is, you have somewhere between five to seven uh, sort of groupings. Mm. And in the pseudoscience of the 1600s and 1700s and so on, these groupings are being determined by things like the size of skulls uh, mm. or um, particular features, you know, eye shape, skin color, hair texture, things of that sort. Um, and again, the idea is that you, you can divide humanity into these groupings uh, as a matter of sort of scientific segmentation, if you will. Mm. Genetic, the genetic data is really clear. This is, this is a nonsensical idea, yeah. genetically speaking. There's no science to support it. It's pseudoscience. Um, and so now most people, when they talk about race, they'll talk about it as a social construct. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We know it's not rooted in science in, actual, in actuality, but it's a social construct that helps explain mm. various things. And I, I think that is problematic too. Mm. So how, how is it distinct from ethnicity? How do you think about the term ethnicity? Well, another term for ethnicity might be family or okay. clan, yeah. right? Uh, and so kind of like race, for example... Uh, a, a family or an ethnic, uh, ethnic group is going to have some commonalities around culture, language, um, very often skin color, things of that sort. This is why um, if you're just walking by sight, race seems like a self-evident thing, mm. right? Uh, unlike uh, race, the, the notion of, of ethnicity is porous and malleable. Mm -hmm. So people can move in and out of ethnic groups. Ethnic groups sort of rise and fall. Right, mm -hmm. uh, because it's about family. You marry into family. You you, you blend into families. Things of that sort. Um, and so the scripture talks about ta ethne the nations, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and Genesis ten and other places give us definition for um, these people groups, these family groups, these clans, mm -hmm. these nations and tribes. Um, and so it's not something that's strictly rooted, uh, or, or even rooted in biology, mm. uh, but something rooted in kinship mm. yeah, and family in belonging. That's right. Um, so getting practical here for a minute. So if I refer to, for example, myself as, um, an Asian American mm -hmm. or to you as an African American, mm -hmm. in what sense is that 
okay? In what sense is it problematic, right? Like based on what we've just said about race being kind of a false idea. Yeah. Um, to the extent that you're sort of capturing um, an identity that's different from other identities in the, in, in the Americas, for mm-hmm. example, uh, and trying to sort of communicate something meaningful about that sense of belonging, identity, and so forth, I think it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's reaching for a kind of ethnic identifier. Yep. Uh, but it's actually too blunt, right? So um, if, if you say you're an Asian-American, well, are you Hmong? Are you Chinese? Sure. Are you Laotian? I mean, you know, it's just um, there, there are various people groups, mm-hmm. right, beneath that generalization of yep. Asian, wherein those differences matter. Mm-hmm. Right, they matter in terms of language. They matter in terms of culture. They matter in terms of world and life view. Um, so if you if you're sort of rolling everybody up into Asian and saying, okay, all Asian Americans are fill in the blank, well then that's stereotype, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, and it's not it's not particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why in missiology, we we don't talk at that broader level. Mm-hmm. We talk in terms of people groups, right? Uh, and and we get fairly specific about those people. How groups. many? How many are there globally? Oh gosh, you're gonna quiz me. I, for, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, it's like I forget. We'll, but, we'll uh, put it in the show notes, but it's like it? over a thousand. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's much yeah, more yeah, than that. Yeah, multiple yeah. thousands. Yeah, um, most of them unreached. Yeah. Uh, and so we, as missiologists, we do the hard work of figuring out who those people groups are, mm-hmm. so that we can be informed about who they are and how to talk to them, how to contextualize the gospel, for example, and so on. Uh, we, we sadly don't do that hard work in our sort of everyday parlance, in our, in our mm-hmm, everyday sure. social interaction. We tend toward abstraction. We tend toward generalization. And that's where a lot of our problems begin. Because mm-hmm. even as an African-American, I'm, I'm born and raised in North Carolina, right? Yep. To be an African-American born and raised in small town North Carolina is a different experience, even a different sort of cultural identity than to be an African-American raised in inner city Chicago or New York, right? Yep. To be urban versus rural in that way. Um, so, you know, I, I, think our, I think oftentimes our, our labels are too bland, they're too, they're too broad to really be useful uh, at getting mm-hmm. to know the person or the, the group of people that we're talking about. So the idea of the, 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 well, so actually, so let me come back to your definition of race as the falsehood. Why was race invented yeah. in the 16th and 17th centuries? It's a great question. Uh, in, in, in those centuries, um, people groups are moving now. You know, Europe is expanding, um, you know, coming into contact with people on different continents, discovering the world. The world's becoming a smaller place. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that arises is, you know, how, how do we, sort of think about these people we're coming into contact with. Um, are, are they all descended from Adam? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a question about polygenesis. And, and, are there, and so the church rejects that pretty early on as a heresy. Right? Genesis 3.21, mm-hmm. all are descended from, from Eve, right? Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, if, if they're all sort of descended from Adam and Eve and we, and we don't have a sort of polygenetic theory here, uh, how are they related to each other, right? Um, and pretty soon what you get in the sort of meeting of civilizations and the meeting of people groups are questions about civilization, who's mm-hmm. civilized or not, hmm. and questions about how civilization or being civilized and, and therefore being human hmm. are really connected with Christianity and religion, 
right? So we're talking about race in the church, for example. Mm-hmm. So um, Rebecca Getz, wonderful book, The Baptism of Early Virginia, does a wonderful job of teasing out uh, how this notion of civilization gets married with Europe, which gets married with Christianity, mm-hmm. right? So that if you're not a Christian and you're not a European, by definition, you're barbarian. You, you, you're not civil, mm. civilized. And, and the sort of mission of European uh, Christians becomes to civilize the heathen. Mm-hmm. which is tantamount to evangelizing the heathen, right? Mm-hmm. But then you, you have, with that kind of thinking, you have all of these questions about hierarchy mm-hmm. and, and who's superior and who's inferior. And so it's at this point that I think it's important for people to understand that racism comes before race. Yeah, That race is the pseudoscientific theory that is created to legitimize racism. It's created to legitimize the notion that there are some groups superior to others and other groups who are inferior, and that's rooted in biology, mm. that, that people are, as Rebecca Getz puts it, hereditary heathens, mm. right? Uh, that their heathenism is a, is a matter of uh, their heredity. Uh, well, that's racism, right? right? And, and race is the theory that gives that, that sin its cover, right? Yeah. Um, and that's the relationship between those two. So actually, and just for more on this, you've written a blog post pretty recently. Uh, I think, is it called The Chicken Came First? The Chicken Came First. Which is to say racism came before race. That's right. right? Racism led to a conception of race to justify it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you about what that, how that plays out in our own history in a second, but I think this is a good point to ask you just sort of, so what does the Bible have to say about all this? Mm. What does the Bible have to say about this idea of ethnicity, um, nationhood, um, and though, I mean, we've just said it's a false idea, this idea of race. Yeah. Well, ethnicity and nationhood just runs right throughout the Bible, mm-hmm. right? You see God creating people groups out of almost, almost ex nihilo. Mm-hmm. So when he calls Abraham, Abraham's a, a pagan, he's a Gentile. When we meet Abraham, uh, in Genesis 11, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's from Ur of the Chaldees. Mm-hmm. God says, I'm going to make you a nation. Mm-hmm. Right, so ex nihilo almost, he takes a Gentile and makes him a Jew, mm-hmm. right? Makes him the father of a new nation, and the rest of the the sort of Pentateuch is telling us about the development of this nation. First, mm-hmm. there's Abraham, and there's a son, and there's twelve sons, and yep. you know, then you get the nation of Israel, and they're interacting with nations all around them, you know, people groups all around them that share mm-hmm. a language and a culture and so on, um, and so that idea of nation is is just running through the Bible in that way. Um, what, what the Bible tells us, though, is that, you know, we're, we're one humanity, hmm. right? We're all descended from Adam and Eve, as we were saying before. And if we're Christians, this is the, the other new creation of humanity, hmm. that we have now been grafted into Christ. Um, and we're this, this, this one new man, as Paul says hmm. in, in Ephesians chapter 2, made up of all these different nations, but, but now Christians, right? Uh, that's our new sort of... Uh, ethnic identity, if you will, so spiritual ethnicity mm-hmm. uh, in that sense. And so we're either, the Bible sort of teaches us this worldview where we're either in Adam mm. or we're in the second Adam, mm-hmm. which is Christ, right? Uh, and so that's the outlook the Bible has given us and teaching us on, on the world. But now the Bible also teaches us um, about a number of sins mm. that form the cocktail that we call racism. Pride, Mm-hmm. Hatred, fear, partiality. Yeah, right. So racism mm-hmm. sort of swirls those things together into one drink, mm-hmm. right? So we take pride in our 
quote unquote racial selves. Hmm. Um, that pride is often expressed in hostility or hatred or indifference to other groups, a kind of xenophobia, um, and and it expresses a partiality. Hmm. We like our group. We don't like those other groups. Mm-hmm. We like those groups who are closest to us racially, mm-hmm. and those farther away we dislike. Yep. Um, and so you, you get this kind of cocktail called racism in that way, mm-hmm. uh, which the Bible sort of speaks to in its sort of constituent parts. Are there instances of racism recounted in the Bible that are so. instructive for us? I think so. So when Moses' siblings um, mm-hmm. gives his wife, who's uh, any, any, who's black, Mm-hmm. gives her a hard time because she's black. You remember what God does there? He strikes her, strikes Miriam with leprosy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you see, that's a very clear instance of, of racism. Uh, you see other kinds of sort of racial attitudes develop. Even in God's elect people, Israel, over the centuries, they developed some pretty prejudicial, call it racist attitudes toward non-Jews. Um, Which then have to be dealt with in the New Testament. That's exactly right. And so then, <laughs> yeah. so, the, so the first conversations you have about people groups in the New Testament is reckoning with that. Mm. Whether it's Greek and Hebrew speaking widows in Acts mm. 6, or it, whether it's what do we do with the Gentiles in the Jerusalem yeah. Council uh, in, in Acts 15. You know, it, it wrestling with this notion of, oh, there are these people who aren't Jews. Must they become Jews first mm. in order to be accepted in the kingdom? Or has the gospel exploded all of that? And if it's exploded all of that, on what basis do we include them? It, you know, must they be circumcised? You know, that is a serious wrestling match mm-hmm. uh, in the pages of the New Testament scripture. And so I, there, I think you get those kinds of things. Some of the some of the slurs really in the scripture are mm-hmm. essentially racist. You know, mm-hmm. you uncircumcised Philistine. Right. You know, um, and so not racist in the way that we think about the pseudoscience that develops in the 1600s, 1700s but racist in the sense of those sort of constituent sins being expressed toward a people group mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And uh, I think gives us a good overview of sort of, you know, obviously the Bible, you know, has no category for, you know, us being racist or mm-hmm. espousing racist attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, you know, we are even, even as believers, not perfect in this. Um, and I think obviously the history of the church in America um, is sort of a good example of that. So in brief, and we can just sort of try to give a very short summary together on this, what's been the history of the church's involvement in issues of race in America over the last 400 years of its history? Uh, I think it's been pretty bad. Okay. I think it's essentially just missed the mark mm. altogether. Um, so when when sort of race and racism are at their ascendancy in terms of cultural and scientific legitimacy, 1700s, yeah. 1800s, uh, it gets married to theological argumentation, Yeah. right? So that the church in some quarters begins to offer theological justification uh, for, for racism, mm-hmm. right? Now that's not universally the case. Sure. There's some exceptions. Um, I mean, the, the one group of religious folks who, who got slavery right, so to speak, would have been the Quakers, hmm. right? From Quakers were never pro-slavery, always anti-slavery, hmm. and almost alone uh, in terms wow. of in terms of religious bodies that got it, right? Now, you can get some individuals here and there in different bodies and so on, but in terms of a, an entire denomination. Nobody was unified against slavery. No, 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 except for Quakers. Yeah. Um, so the 1700s, 1800s, the church is making its, uh, making its peace uh, with this practice. And certainly by the time you come down to emancipation, uh, in 1800s, they're making its peace to the extent that 
churches began to move toward 1800s, early 1900s segregationist uh, policies mm-hmm. inside the church. Uh, and to the extent that African Americans then were forced out of uh, predominantly white denominations to form the historic black denominations, uh, mm-hmm. seven of them, National Baptists and so AME and so on. Yeah. Um, so, so some folks have called this issue the sort of original sin of the country, uh, mm-hmm. and that would be true of the church too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we live even down to this day with the legacy of those mistakes, that blindness, that antipathy uh, that was expressed um, you know, centuries ago. Again, a site Rebecca gets his book. Mm. You know, she tells this wonderful story. She's looking at Anglicans in uh, Virginia in the 1700s, 1800s, and looking at how the idea of race was sort of being codified in mm. both civil law and church law uh, in those centuries, um, and, and how there's this intentional debate around, for example, baptism. Mm-hmm. If a slave or a Native American mm. is converted and wishes to be baptized, what does that mean about freedom? If we baptize them as a brother and sister in Christ, mm. should we give them their freedom? Does it have it? Now, the way they answered that was it has no bearing at all um, on their on their status as slaves or uh, whatnot. And so, folks are not quite being brought into full communion in the mm. church, or they're being brought into full communion in the church, but they're mm. not being treated as brothers and sisters um, socially and economically, and so on. Uh, so, the church has had this staggering compromise. Yeah. On this issue. I, I love the line from uh, Mark Knoll. He's, he and David Bevington edited a series on the history of evangelicalism. Knoll writes the volume on evangelicalism in the days of Whitfield and Edwards and so on. He has come back to this question, knowing Mark personally, he, he's noodled on this question over years. Mm. How has the church missed it? Yeah. And he says later in that book, he says he's convinced that so many Christians miss this issue of slavery and racism because so many Christians own slaves. Hmm. The compromise with society, the worldliness that was the adoption of slavery, um, created this blindness and this hypocrisy, sometimes willful blindness, um, that seriously crippled the the witness of the church in that regard. How did that blindness continue, diminish, increase during the 20th century? If you think about civil rights movement, the Jim Crow era, yeah. Among conservative churches in particular, it increases hmm. because conservative um, Christians, evangelical Christians, again, were the public theologians in defense of Jim Crow segregation and hmm. so on. Um, just to give an example, the, the Christian school movement is in many respects simply a reaction to integration. When Christians decided they would not have their children in public schools with African-Americans and others, and instead pulled them out of the schools and began to sort of uh, create Christian schools. Um, So what we see in the civil rights movement is an intensification of of racial animosity and antipathy Mm. um, from one one branch of the church, evangelical, conservative, Mm. uh, Christian fundamentalist churches, toward another branch of the church black churches and black Christians who were the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that's not quite recognized in the, in the popular imagination is that the civil rights movement is a religious movement. Yeah. You know, it, it is a kind of religious revival in, in social ethics, really. Um, and the other thing that's not recognized is it is in a religious civil war mm-hmm. between black churches and white churches. 
to the extent that white churches opposed the civil rights movement. Um, and, and the white opposition, Christian opposition, wasn't distinguishable from, from, from white uh, sort of secular opposition. Hmm. Now, by the time of the civil rights movement, of course, you do get a lot of uh, white brothers and sisters joining the civil rights movement, having had their consciences pricked mm-hmm. uh, and coming to, to, to see um, the full enfranchisement of mm-hmm. black people in society uh, as, a, as a positive moral good, as a just outcome. Um, and so by that point, the almost universal blindness or indifference is breaking down. Uh, in inside of white congregations, right. but not so, not to the point where you see any differently from slavery, a whole denomination that's majority white coming out yeah. and saying, you know, we're 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 with the movement, so not, to speak. Not on the conservative side, yeah, right. So this is to the shame of of Bible believing conservative right. quote unquote right. gospel preaching churches, uh, denominations uh, on the whole. Listen, these denominations split really um, in. Two or three times in the history of the U.S., mm-hmm. the first is after around Civil War, leading into the Civil War, um, when they're splitting over slavery, mm-hmm. right, and whether or not uh, slave owners can be missionaries or participate in in missions. Mm-hmm. That's how you get the Southern Baptist Convention, yeah, right, which breaks away from the Northern Baptists, who who, who then tilt left, tilt liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, the second time you're going to get that is 1920s or so the modernist uh, controversy, right? But that's, that's theological. That's, that's liberal conservative theologically, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not altogether disconnected from what you'll see in terms of the, the split in the civil rights era um, where uh, progressive Christians break in direction of, in favor of civil yeah. rights claims and conservative Christians uh, against civil rights claims. Uh, and so what you're getting is uh, big splits, in a church over this issue yeah. uh, rather than um, massive repentance uh, and reconciliation. The thing I always think about when I think about being a person with conservative theology is sort of my, my shorthand is why are the pagans doing it better than us? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think about these questions mm-hmm. around how is it that it's the people with the bad theology uh, that stand on the right side of history, not on all these issues, but on these particular ones, the ones having to do with race and racism. Um, yeah, no, that's really something. Well, well, in one sense, part of the problem is is the way those labels orient us. So, um, if one thinks of himself as a progressive, hmm. they they generally have in mind a, a posture of moving towards something. Mm-hmm. Now, I happen to agree with G.K. Chesterton. We live in a generation where um, folks really, because they don't know where they're going, uh, have no legitimate claim to the to the label progressive. They, they don't know what they're progressing toward, right? But if you're a conservative, you, you, you're orienting yourself and you're posturing yourself to conserve, to keep things essentially the way they yes. are, right? And if that gets tangled up, not, not just with a sort of theological, we're preserving, we're contending once and for all for the faith delivered to the saints. Mm. But if that gets married also to we want to conserve the kind of social structures as they are mm-hmm. and, and the cultures as they are without, without examining Right. What are our cultural sins and what, what do we need to be getting rid of so that you can be saying, hey, I'm faithful to the gospel and the Bible. I believe the Bible. I'm a conservative. And that just gets wed to, okay, I'm also a segregationist and, right. <laughs> and we need to conserve the Southern way of life. Right. That's disastrous. Right. right. So part of it is just that orientation, conservative, progressive, 
I don't think that's a right a good axis for Christians. That's that's really interesting because I've never I've never because obviously I'm not an expert, but I've never questioned the idea of the label conservative on theology. Mm-hmm. And yet you're right; it may be harmful mm-hmm. because philosophically, conservatism stands for exactly what you're describing: mm-hmm. this idea that let's be, in its most generous interpretation, let us be humble about making changes. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's not what it means to be conservative theology. That's theologically, right. being conservative theologically means there's one truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need to make sure we have it or are rediscovering it at mm-hmm. a given moment. That's right. And that is not the same thing as sort of philosophical conservatism. And when the two are conflated, you get that error. That's right. And it's sort of funny, like with that kind of conservatism, there's no reformation. That's right. Right? There's no, right. there's, the Reformation would not have happened right. had, we cons- had we all been quote-unquote conservative theologians. That's right. So part of what's in the way in these sort of contemporary conversations inside the church is that I do think you got folks who see themselves as conservative in that faulty way. Hmm. And so they dig in on any suggestion that, okay, we need to admit some things about the past hmm. and examine ourselves in the, in the current. Uh, it's just, it's a posture and an orientation that, that sometimes can just make a person sort of, you know, obdurate, sort of hard-hearted yeah. uh, and hard-headed in terms of, um, and, and then you ally that with a fear of everything progressive, everything liberal. Any change. Any change. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's a, that's, a, that's a hard person to move. And all the while, they, they see themselves as faithful. Of course. You yeah. Know? Well, that actually brings me to my next question, which is, you know, you particularly, we have been a part of a conversation inside the church on this uh, for a long time. Mm. In the present day, what are the fault lines within the the so-called conservative, at least reformed, <laughs> evangelical church mm. on questions of race and racism? What seem to be the big questions that we're taking on? Evangelicalism is so many things that that's a, that's a hard thing to get at. Mm. So you've got some folks like the Kenneths uh, inside of evangelicalism, small, um, fringe, who take who would agree absolutely. Yes, there there are ethnicities in the group. Ken, they take their name Ken. Mm-hmm. These kinship groups should not mix, should not intermarry, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And they see that as a very Christian sort of understanding of the scripture. So you've got on the fringe, the sort of lunatic fringe. Uh, these Kenneths who basically are trying to baptize racist ideas uh, as Christians. Right? Mm-hmm. So you got those folks over there. Sure. Um, then you've then you've got in another sort of corner of evangelicalism, you, you've got un, un <laughs> sort of unrehabilitated fundamentalists, mm-hmm. right? Uh, who have kind of snuck into evangelicalism uh, and have tried to make evangelicalism more fundamentalist. Mm. Than they have tried to become fundamental, and and the same, you're gonna get a lot of retrograde. And fundamentalism in this case, you're talking. I mean, I'm thinking separation and philosophical conservatism, as you put it, like don't change things. Yeah, but but, but especially expressed along social lines. Okay. Right. Yep. Um, and so think think uh, think historically, Bob Jones. Yeah. You know, institutions like that, folks who are coming out of those sort of quarters. So you've got fundamentalists who who were sort of home and seedbed to a lot of problematic racial attitudes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with the way some of the, the the progress has been made since the civil rights movement, the problem is it's it's made by legal decision. And I'm glad I wouldn't, you know. Sure. You know. <laughs> but that's not the same thing as repentance. Yeah. And so among a lot of sort of evangelicals, fundamentalists, conservative, uh, you get a, a bigger group who say, we're past all that. Didn't we change the laws? 
and by which they mean everybody repented and everybody's <laughs> hearts have changed. It's like, uh, no. That, the sword of the state was used to force exactly people right. to act a different that's way exactly right. than they acted before. That's exactly right. You got the yeah. National Guard showing up at <laughs> elementary schools. Right. Right? Uh, because good Christian white folk were showing up at the school in right, you know, mentality, protesting, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. So that's not repentance. You know, even if we have 40 years later, 50 years later, come to recognize, oh, that was wrong. That ain't the same thing as repenting. Um, and so you've got that kind of confusion out there. And then you've got folks who get it. You know, I think a, a, a great number of folks who get it and are trying to live faithfully in these areas, in these ways. Uh, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, members of, of local churches together in, mm-hmm. in increasingly multi-ethnic uh, terms. I think that's wonderful. Um, and that seems to break down. You talk about divide. Some of that seems to break down generationally. Sure. Right, so if you're if you're a millennial, you know you sometimes some millennials are like, I just don't understand my granddaddy. You know, I don't understand sure. my mom and dad. Like, you know, yeah. I've always gone to school with, mm-hmm. you know, so and so, and this this my dude, right? You yeah, know, this yeah. is my girl, and um, praise the Lord. I think that's evidence of God's grace and and progress. Mm-hmm. But many of the younger Christians live in tension with their older Christian parents or grandparents uh, who. Sure who have just kind of quietly walked out of the civil rights movement and said, okay, we got a mulligan. We're just going to start over. But they hadn't really dealt with the hard stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that, so those, are those generational tensions. Around I think that. some people think that's what repentance is. Uh, a mulligan. Yeah. I think right? that's right. Like it's I like, think... let's just live and let live. I think that's right. Forget. I think that's right. I <laughs> right. think that's right. And that's so consequently point. we keep having to deal with the same things um, sort of popping up. Um, and, and there's a different level of confidence between younger Christians and older Christians at having these conversations mm. and different levels of patience and engagement. In. Let me, let me, um, let me, let me, let me speak to a couple of the questions I think I've heard, right? So there's one question I think about whether, whether we should be thinking about race as a category at all. So you said it yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Race is a social construction. It's mm-hmm. an, it's an evil, it's an error. So why some say why should the church be concerning itself with this? Why should we not simply treat everyone the same? Mm-hmm. This sort of the general overtone. And they'll say, let's, and of course, it's used in political discourse. It's used in church discourse. Why not just all be colorblind? Isn't it unhelpful mm. to sort of emphasize, keep emphasizing this point? So that's kind of, I'll start with that one. Yeah. Well, there's a difference between uh, emphasizing something and exposing something, mm-hmm. right? So the mention of race. Um, in many of these conversations, it's not the same as emphasizing or insisting upon thinking of ourselves in, in racialized ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons you have to point out race is in order to sort of peel back that 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 layer of cover mm-hmm. to then point at racism. Mm-hmm. Racism is the real thing, right? Yeah. And the way racism works is it, it, it sort of suggests that race is real and that mm-hmm. race is explanatory, right? That mm-hmm. race has explanatory power for things that are going on in the world. Well, there's no way to sort of get beneath the race to the racism that's at work there without sort of saying, hey, this race thing, it is a fiction. Now let's look at the real thing here. Mm-hmm. Or the real thing is showing up along these racial lines, right? So, so let me give you an example. I, I mm-hmm. think there are well, well-intended people who say things like, um, race is, race or racism 
um, it's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Okay, we like our rhymes. We do. And I think that's cute, right? Racism is a sin problem that expresses itself as a skin problem. Mm-hmm. If you stop talking about the skin problem, you're not actually talking about the sin problem. Yeah. Because the nature of the thing is it points at skin color and says, this is what that is, right? So the, the, the sort of cute ways we try to deal with these very difficult sins on this issue, uh, actually I think are counterproductive, right? So if you had a husband come to you seeking counseling, right? And he says, um, I've been unfaithful to my wife. You know, but he uses all these euphemisms. I've had an affair or uh, I just I just love women and da 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 and mm. uh, you're not gonna talk with that guy about well let's not let's not call it adultery. You know, let's find another it's not really a, 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 a sort of adultery. It's a hard problem. problem. Yeah. No, man, you're gonna get to that. Stop cheating. Tell me you, specifically you what you did. What you did. How do how do you make that happen? Okay, give me your phone. Call her now. Break it off now. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you're going to get very specific right. about various things. This is that one sort of sin problem because our conscience isn't easy. We've never really repented of it and dealt with it. Mm-hmm. This is that one sin problem in the culture that we can't talk with about that. Talk about with that kind of specificity. Um, and so I think the pointing of it out is a finger in the eye, right? It's, yeah. it's a provoking of the conscience, and some people harden their conscience, and other people soften and are helped. You said it in a blog post, and I think we've said it before in conversations. It's the one unconfessable sin, mm-hmm. I think, in our circles mm-hmm. to be able to say, um, you know, you could give a sermon mm-hmm. to a, you know, kind of church in our Reformed evangelical circles and say, for example, repent of the, as you as you put, repent of the lust in your hearts, repent of mm-hmm. the anger in your hearts, mm-hmm. repent of the, na- you name it, mm-hmm. and repent specifically, and you'd get a lot of head nodding. Mm-hmm. A lot of thoughtfulness, Mm -hmm. a lot of weeping, a lot of conviction. Mm -hmm. Replace any of those sins with the word racism. Yeah, and you get defensiveness. Well, you get a lot of angry emails. (laughs) A lot of comments at the door. That's exactly right. Here's what I realized. Here's part of what I realized. I I wrote that post uh, a few weeks back saying, hey, we await repentance for killing Dr. King. Um, Mm. And when I used repentance in the title, I wasn't thinking hard about it, right? Yeah. But I got all this pushback. And uh, the more I listen and engage folk around the pushback, here's what I realized. People didn't want to say mom and dad were racist. Mm. They just didn't want to say that. Um, they, they, you know, I love my mom. I love my dad. I love my grandma. I love my granddad. They love me. They were lovely people. And I just want to say, I have no doubt yeah. that your mom and dad and your grandparents loved you and cared for you. That does not mean they were nice to other people. Yeah. Right? And so there's this, this unwillingness then to implicate mom and dad or grandmom and granddad and say something so nasty about them as they might have been racist or at least indifferent in the face of racism. Um, that, that's, a, that's a bit of an idol for people that creates this defensiveness and this reflexive, well, I'm not a racist and really nobody I know is a racist and I don't even want to talk about that. I'm tired of being blamed about it. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, that's the telltale sign of a conscience that's um, not really dealing yeah. with things as it ought. I think that's tough, right? I think about it a little bit mm-hmm. and I think about... I think about that difficulty. I, I, so my my mental image I have is when I listen to sort of the current political debate over, say, the Confederacy and Confederate statues. Mm-hmm. And I think what you hear some people who maybe have some Southern pride or some pride in whatever whatever mm-hmm. it might be, mm-hmm. they might. Say, I think what they would say is, "Must we invalidate it all?" Yeah. Right. <laughs> 
must we invalidate it all? Mm -hmm. And actually, even the Confederacy is an extreme example. It's must I invalidate my grandpa, Mm -hmm. right? Must Mm -hmm. I now remember him forever Mm -hmm. as this horrible racist? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to that is actually, even even I I would dare say in the case of something like the Confederacy, no, you must not invalidate it all. You got to invalidate the bad part. Mm -hmm. And that makes that person or that movement no different from any human being who's ever existed. Except that when the bad part is so big a part of the central part, mm. it gets really hard. Yeah. Right? So he, The Confederacy, confederacy is, is the example is of that. exactly right. Yeah. It's built on yeah. this notion, right? Yes. And so it gets kind of hard. But, you know, what's interesting, uh, man, is, is I would just want to say we've all got to grow up enough to be able to admit at least two things at one time. Right. Mom and dad can be good mom and dad. And they can also be, you know, racist, right? Or, or some other thing. Choose it, right? And here's why I know that people can do it, hmm. but we're dealing with um, maybe maybe hypocritical defensiveness. Yeah. It's because often in those conversations, I'll have people push back on me and, and want to talk about sins in the African-American community, right? Mm. Um, you know, fatherlessness and out-of-wedlock birth and all those things are explanatory. I said, how did you get so good at confessing our sins? <laughs> Right, but you can't confess <laughs> yours, and you want me to admit ours, which I'm happy to do. Yeah, but you won't admit yours, right? That that for me is one of the sort of revealing signs that actually, you know what, you're just being a bit sort of hard-hearted toward what's obvious, right? So uh, I I'm I'm happy to say, yeah, no, we we've, we've got some major sin problems in the African American community, you know, some of which people are pointing out in these discussions. Yeah, but it seems like to me that's a bit of a red herring. That's a bit of bait and switch. What we're talking about right now is racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, if you want me to admit these things, then I'm, I'm going to insist that you come to the table admitting the same kind of cultural sins yeah. on the other end of the ledger. Yeah. yeah. Um, you talked about generations and mom and dad, but what about the people who say, well, it was my mom and dad. It's not me. Mm-hmm. Why the heck do I have to repent? Yeah. Well, that's where I go. Yeah. I'm not asking folks to repent for mom and dad. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm asking folks to say, what I say in that post is, um, very specifically, I don't need you to feel guilty about the 60s. You weren't even born in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But I do need you to suspect that sin is not finished working its way through society. Mm-hmm. Right? So so racism doesn't go away because you you signed the Voting Rights Act yeah. you know, in 1965. Right? Or, uh, racism doesn't go away because you integrate public transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a shelf life longer than the last bill signed that you know yeah. in our legislatures so we need to be on the watch for that in our own hearts in our day mm-hmm. right and to suspect that uh, so pervasive a cultural sin has its fingerprints on other things even into our day yeah. and to and to be prayerful about that and, there's one other dimension of this i want to bring up which cuz i think it's important because the truth is the people who offer the clearest testimony on that are the people who have experienced it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, people who can testify to having experienced racism. That means people of color. It means African Americans. And I think one thing that some sort of majority culture, Christians, and people generally have trouble with is this idea of a viewpoint that is privileged over their viewpoint. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Something they have, they don't have the same access to, yeah. and therefore I must, I must actually trust your testimony rather than my own experience. And, and Nick, let me tell you, it's worse than that. Mm. Be, because the, the long history of this country is the testimony of such persons, people of color, African-Americans, mm-hmm. was not valid. 
mm-hmm. in courts of law, sure. in social standing. I mean, when you have a Supreme Court judge says, you know, a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. Mm. Boy, that sets a culture in a particular direction. Right. So not only are you not accustomed to having someone else's voice be privileged, mm. but what you're working against is the is the sort of gravitational pull of 300 years of, of actually invalidating yeah. uh, and not giving space to uh, the voices of others. And um, you can see it sometimes in the reflexive anger, mm. right? So even as a little boy growing up in the 70s, you know, I got lessons from my folks about things I could or could not say to white adults. Yep. Lest they get angry and lest things get volatile. Mm-hmm. That was the 1970s. Ain't that long ago. Yeah. Um, and so this is, you know, in a culture where every black man, no matter how old he was, was boy. And every mm-hmm. white man, no, how, no matter how young he was, was Mr. Okay, that's a culture that produces people who aren't used to being challenged uh, or corrected or having someone else's viewpoint established over theirs. And this is what I mean by, you know, the sort of fingerprints of the sin that we got to kind of work through and make sure it isn't in our hearts. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, I know we're, we're a bit over time for this I'm one. And there's, no, 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 it's, not your, it's not your fault. Uh, it's, a, it's a big topic and one we're going to come back to. But we've re- we've laid down the floorboards. <laughs> Hopefully, the floorboards. <laughs> um, so again, I'll just close with the question we usually close with, which is, um, how, what should our exhortation be to the thinking Christian? We think about the white Christian and also the non-white Christian, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we need to think more of Jesus than we do, mm-hmm. particularly the the reconciliation He's accomplished in the cross. I'm thinking there of Ephesians chapter two. Um, we need to think more about uh, our Christian identity, you know, mm-hmm. how it is that we are one new man in Christ um, and, and what that alters and changes with regard to our natural identities, right? So, for example, Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 9 about uh, his own Jewishness that he could take it off and put it on mm-hmm. as it served the gospel. I don't think most Christians understand themselves to have that kind of freedom from natural identity, uh, so radical in that. So we need to think harder about our identities in that way. And we need to think harder about the fact that our natural identities, though secondary, are not accidents. Mm. God made us this way. Mm. And he made us this way for his glory. Mm. Uh, and they are not simply things that we tolerate, but ought really to be things that we celebrate. Because mm. there are some things in God's common grace that's in Asian culture that's not in African or African-American culture, and vice versa. Mm. And, and pick your culture, right? That is meant to be a blessing to the world. Because that's how God has made us. You know, it's an echo of his grace. Yeah. Uh, and we need to spend some more time mining that and appreciating that and growing from that. Mm-hmm. So let's see. I'll add one or two thoughts to that mm-hmm. in terms of what... So I'm, I'm just coming back to the topic we talked about earlier. I think if you're any kind of Christian, if you're a majority culture Christian in particular, this idea of getting comfortable with the of with the concept of someone else's testimony being something you can't access without listening to them. Mm. So Mm. if you have a friend who's a person of color, who's an African-American, to say, actually, when it comes to talking about this, it feels weird, maybe? Mm. It feels a little unfair, I suppose. Mm. Um, But actually, sitting and listening and saying, this person knows things I don't know. Mm -hmm. This person has walked in and experienced things that I will never experience. And just being kind of open to that... Mm. Um, I know in my own kind of personal journey, right? Like I'm a person of color, but I'm not an African-American. There were a number of, I think, people in my life growing up that had to educate me about those things. And I had to eventually learn how to listen. Mm. 
actually mm-hmm. was was sort of like how that how that came about and and vice versa by the way when mm-hmm. someone wants to know about what it is to be an asian american or from an immigrant family or anything else like that you know and i think that that willingness to to listen is important and then i think i think if you're a, a christian of color obviously i think a readiness to extend that grace is probably important mm-hmm. that posture of mm-hmm. when you repent when someone else repents i'm not going to hold it over your head mm-hmm. i'm going to Rejoice. Mm-hmm. I'm going to welcome it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am going to forgive mm-hmm. because that's what happens after repentance. So I know those are, those are the two thoughts I've got. No, that's good, brother. Last thing, it was just a couple things for folks to read if they like. Mm. Uh, if you're interested in this history of, of the development of race, particularly um, in its relationship to Christian theology in the church, Colin Kidd's book from a few years back called The Forging of Races, uh, absolutely vital piece. The introductory essay is worth the price of the book. Uh, so mm-hmm. I would commend that to you. I, I mentioned Rebecca Getz's book, The Baptism of Early Virginia, uh, wonderful book. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Barbara Fields and her daughters, her daughter, uh, so Field and Fields' book, Racecraft. Uh, excellent mm-hmm. sort of um, ex- exploration of race and racism uh, using witchcraft as a kind of analogy, uh, mm-hmm. where they say, you know, witchcraft was used at a certain point in history to explain the unexplainable, Mm. right? Um, And to sort of give uh, causative power Mm. to things that really didn't have that power. And race operates much the same way. Uh, And so that that little book, Racecraft, excellent, excellent piece to read. Excellent. All right, well, that, would you like to close us in prayer? Amen. Father, we do thank you that you did not make any mistakes in uh, making us who you made us to be. And we thank you, O Lord, that in... uh, final days in that in that mm. great eternity lord uh, around your throne will be men and women boys and girls from every nation every tribe every language mm. all singing your praises to your glory and you've already begun that work in your church and we pray for your church help us not to be discouraged uh, about the ways in which we are not completely sanctified mm. and help us O oh lord to see the evidence of your grace at work in your body And grant us grace, O Lord, to go on in sanctification and to grow in these areas, O Lord, uh, so that we might actually be the witness that you've called us to be to a perishing world. Uh, We do praise you, Father, uh, that you have loved us, and uh, we do praise you that you are redeeming us, and we do long for the day when it will be complete. So come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Fathers, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.